Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of What I Wish I Learned. We're back in the studio for episode three. Episode three. Episode three, baby. Uh, as usual, shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, my dad, <laughs> Greg, shout out. Uh, Steve's brother, Mike, shout out. My girlfriend and uh, Julie. So thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. Um, and if you aren't already subscribed to the Patreon, go and do it right now. What are you doing? It's We're three episodes in and you haven't subscribed to Patreon? Come on. And today or yesterday... People that were on Patreon got access, early access to our episode already. So there are clear benefits here, people. Yeah, and you don't even have to be on the $7 tier to get early access. You get $3. $3 tier tier gets early access anyways. So if you're not supporting us on Patreon, please go uh, do that right now. And the post-show discussions are really worth it, I think. For sure. Um, Yeah, and then also merch. Go check yes. out the merch. Uh, what I wish I learned dot com. What I wish I learned dot com. Live. We got some great products. Um, yeah, I've I've actually already spent <laughs> good amount of my own money <laughs> buying some of the products. <laughs> Probably dropped like sixty bucks on nice. it already. Yeah. So go check out the merch if you haven't already. It's fire. Um, and uh, also, don't forget to rate us five stars on Spotify. Yeah. If you haven't already, uh, I think we have enough ratings on there now to where it actually shows. Um, the average rating, which is five stars. So thank you guys if you've already rated us on Spotify. We have a f- current five-star rating right now, which is nice. awesome. So uh, let's let's keep that train going. Not sure if there's a rating system on Stitcher, but if there is, go give us five if stars. If there is, there's... rate us on Stitcher. We don't know. We don't use Stitcher. Because who uses Stitcher? <laughs> Sam. <laughs> who does it? <laughs> uh, anyways, so that's pretty much it. Yeah, we don't have a lot of fluff this episode in the yeah, beginning. So straight to it. We're jumping right into part three, which is heroin. You have to tell me to cue the music, Steve. Hey, no, I cue the music. All right. Welcome, Noah, to part three. Initially, when I was writing part three, it was just going to be heroin, and that was a little too short of content. So I went back, revised it a little bit, and I added some of more encompassing term of just the opioid crisis. So we got heroin, and we're going to have Oxycontin and... The whole we're gonna we're gonna really get into a little bit of political stuff today. Ooh, fun! I try my very best, like socially and professionally, to hide my opinion on a lot of things. I kind of just try to look at everything very objectively, just present you with as many facts as I can. I'm gonna get a little political today. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to get spicy in this episode. Mm. It's gonna get. Extra spicy at the post discussion, though. Extra spicy. Yeah. Unfiltered. Unfiltered, $7 a month. Unedited. (laughs) Subscribe. Subscribe. Do it. All right. Heroin. Um, Heroin is actually something we've kind of talked about a little bit before. When we throw back to season one, when we talked about Afghanistan and the poppy seed production and the production of heroin from the nation of Afghanistan was on the rise with the U.S. intervention there and how... Either the U.S. was incompetent at tearing down flowers or we had some kind of, you know, understanding that this kind of stuff was being grown there and did nothing about it. Um, And so that was our slight intro with heroin. And then heroin is a huge issue in Central and Southeast Asia with uh, when we talked about Vietnam. So we've kind of touched upon heroin in a bit. It's a Schedule 1 drug. Which we talked about in episode two, schedule one are drugs with no medical purpose and only addictive um, behaviors. So I had a follow-up question about that while we're talking about it. When I was editing the episode, um, I realized that we didn't really talk much about like the lower tier. So I had a question on that, which was mm-hmm. like, what? where do pharmaceutical drugs fall? Is are the, is like the scheduling only for illegal drugs no, specifically? No, no. Or? no, there's pharmaceuticals. Okay. Um, like... Antibiotics would probably be a Schedule 5, you okay. know, mass ma- medical purpose and zero, like, abuse. You're not going to go out there and abuse antibiotics. You're right. not going to gain anything out of it. <laughs> you so, might. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Just, I got no bacteria left. So, at what point in the scheduling does it start to get illegal? Is it only Schedule 1 is illegal and everything else is legal? Or? Um, 
I don't know. It's kind of up for between the state and the federal government to decide. So, like, marijuana, for example, Schedule 1 drug, uh, which by by the federal government's perspective has zero medical benefits and only addictive capabilities. Which is cap. <laughs> cap for our older audience means a lie. <laughs> um, but it's a Schedule 1 drug, and so Colorado went over the head of, you know, the federal government and just said, no, it's legal now. So it it's honestly up for the state and federal level to decide if that certain schedule is going to be legal or not. Um, so a lot of what we've been talking about are Schedule Ones, and heroin is no exception. Um, however, this wasn't always the case with, with with heroin, and this is where it's going to get really interesting when we start talking about the op- opioids today. About all the opioids that we're doing is they always start off as um, prescribed medically. And they're always, there's a trend of one opioid will replace another as claiming to be less addictive and more pain tolerant or more pain resistant. So heroin was introduced in the U.S. as a less addictive morphine. So um, poppy seeds, which we know of from Afghanistan, the, the flower that grows um, opioids uh, initially at a very low, like, you know, conversion rate, you can turn it into morphine pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Morphine has been used from anything from treating wounded soldiers to back in the day, literally treating menstrual cramps mm-hmm. and like headaches. So like morphine was all over the place. And then people realize, holy crap, this is really addictive. We need to get rid of it. But then there's still that need in the pharmaceutical industry and in like in medicine that people get hurt, they need, you know, some kind of painkiller. And so when morphine was slightly limited and and labeled as okay dangerous they introduced heroin and i I went on youtube today and if anyone's got the extra time just google old um morphine or heroin ads on youtube they used to be straight up like ads for like you know just throwing out heroin like oh this stuff is pretty good for you like try cocaine and stuff too right yeah it's like back in the day they used drugs like like all kinds of drugs yeah. <laughs> for everything. Like they would just like you have a headache, boom, here's some heroin. Yeah, for real. And we like to think that oh crap, we have this huge drug problem today, which we do. That's just because we now have statistics for it. Back in the day, there wasn't like a statistic of it. It's kind of like coffee today. You know, we assume it's not a drug, so we assume that we're not going to track it. Yeah. So it's pretty widespread, but it's still a stimulant. So how is like how is cocaine different from like caffeine you know because like it technically is kind of the same thing right i mean it yeah it has the same effect although obviously caffeine is significantly less right but still so actually this answer comes from a student of mine today we actually talked about addictive behaviors and then addictive substances so cocaine in of itself is an addictive substance and it preys on addictive behaviors However, coffee as a product itself is not necessarily addicting. You can be addicted to it, but it, it won't cause like a chemical like desire. Like you, it won't rewire your brain to right, be addicted you, to caffeine. You can you can on a, like an extent be addicted to caffeine to the point where I know some people that are right that are addicted to caffeine. And I, I think to some extent I am too. Like if I wake up in the morning and I, you know, wait four hours before a cup of coffee, I'll have a headache. But I'm not going to be sitting there like itching my neck like if I didn't have a dose of cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I physically cannot get hurt if I just stop drinking coffee. Right. It might make me a little irritable or my head might hurt. But with cocaine, you're literally like your body's receptors are getting addicted and stopping to produce like its own enzymes and its own hormones in lieu of cocaine. Right. So like it's literally demand – your body's demanding it. Right. With caffeine, it's just, you know, my – behavior demands it not the substance demands gotcha. it makes sense. so that's why i if i were the guy in charge of scheduling that's kind of how i would determine it can your body on its own like isn't an addictive substance or is or am i just with the addictive behavior mm-hmm. and so like can my body on its own regulate this addiction it's like with caffeine i would if i were to schedule it as a drug five and like cannabis probably like a three cocaine and heroin for sure like schedule one mm-hmm. um actually Hmm. I probably put heroin as like a schedule two. There are some straight up medical benefits. Where to would it. you put uh, MDMA? Three. Same as same as weed. Yeah, I think that it has so much. Like, gosh, I think I ranted for like twenty five minutes last episode you about did. it. Yeah, <laughs> like the one time I ranted about a drug. 
I don't know, though, because like you said, you can specifically overdose <clears throat> on MDMA. That is whereas true. Whereas weed, you can't overdose on You can't on overdose it. on so. it. That's true. All right, all right, all right. Let's put... <laughs> all right. Yeah, okay, never mind. I'm not going to schedule it. I'm not going to make any <laughs> statements here. <clears throat> if I went up or down, I'd probably, there'd be a response. There'd be a backlash. We're out here not trying to cause waves. But back to heroin, briefly. Um, so initially, it was marketed as a less addictive morphine. Um, however, as with a lot of things, once we've made it outlawed, like it took only a couple of years for us to realize, holy crap, this heroin thing is not really a less addictive morphine. It's in fact worse and there's really high abuse of potential. Too late, it's already spread all over the place. And in the US, in 2017 alone, there was a 67% rise in heroin usage across our, our nation. Like, dramatic rise however the thing with heroin is it's not as widespread let's say as like the use of cocaine or synthetics so like if you view all of our episodes that each each drug is very interesting but they kind of get less and less popular the further we go except for the next one when we talk about cannabis which is by far the most consumed drug in the world mm-hmm. um so heroin is on the rise significantly however it's not like a mega threat where like cocaine is and if you want to label cannabis in there as well. Um, But it's still definitely worth talking about. Um, The World Drug Report, um, which is published by the UN every year. If you just Google UNODC, uh, United Nations World Drug Report, um, it will, in nice, pretty graphics, kind of go over every single drug around the world and the use of it. And if we just look at heroin, uh, the percentage of users around the world is about 21 to 29% of the drug market. So, you know, a good chunk of it. Um, however, if you include all opioids, which we're really going to get into further along this episode, we're it's for 53% of the drug use in the world. Wow. So, like, opioids are a massive threat. And then that's, that's definitely a threat from Big Pharma. And the thing about <clears throat> heroin and why it's so popular um, is no matter what you do to it, unlike cocaine, where the price of it has stained, like sustained itself and remained very stable, with heroin, the price can vary so heavily. Like it can be $5 today and $25 tomorrow, and it's an inelastic price, meaning it does not matter what the heck you do with that price. Your consumers are getting it no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this kind of makes it popular and dangerous because if I can afford, you know, three doses today and I can't even afford one tomorrow, it can cause a lot of fear and I can over consume, over purchase and overdose. Mm-hmm. So heroin has a very like volatile market. Right. I'm guessing like if, you know, someone who's addicted to heroin finds a dealer who's willing to sell it to them at a better price, they're probably going to go there and buy like a bunch of it mm-hmm. all at once. And then, you know, then then they just have like a stockpile. And they're going to overdo it. And, yeah, and then they'll overdo it. It's not like cocaine where it the price of it's like 25 or whatever, whatever amount from every dealer everywhere. And you're just looking for safety. With heroin, you're looking for the guy with the cheapest stuff because mm-hmm. tomorrow he might not be around. It doesn't matter. You're buying it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty popular out there. Um, also heroin, the market of it, cause we've, we've talked about like the cartels and the people in charge of the drug trade. They're not just like your low end idiots who just so happen to be really wealthy by selling drugs. These are people that have, have really understood the market. Like these are businessmen, right? And what we've learned from the, the heroin market is they really kind of groom their users to always become dealers of it. And so, like, with cocaine, it doesn't matter. Your user will always be your user. But with heroin, the people at the top echelons of it groom their user to, like, okay, you you know this guy. You're going to consistently get comfortable. And over time, like, hey, I see you like your heroin. Do you, do you know any five of your friends that would like to try it? And then they actually kind of grow. <laughs> so, heroin's just like a giant pyramid scheme? <laughs> hmm It's like this grassroots drug war. And it's kind of weird because... That, that doesn't happen with any other drug other than heroin. I mean, especially with cannabis, like with it legalized, like you have shops and with cocaine, it's like really wealthy, old fashioned drug lords 
<laughs> with heroin, it's just everyone and anyone. And we'll learn towards the end that unlike cocaine, heroin does have a specific market. Like with cocaine, it was billionaires and college students alike. But with heroin, it's like suburban people, middle class suburban people and who are all pretty well interconnected with each other. And they really work off of, you know, just first name basis. Like, hey, Noah, you know me, friend. We we started a podcast together. I've been doing this one thing recently. Do you want to get in on it? It's like a business opportunity. <laughs> it's like crypto. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, hey, man, you want to buy some Bitcoin? It's like that one guy that called you about um, doing some uh, <laughs> pyramid scheme stuff recently. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just change one keyword into cocaine or into heroin. Mm. All right. I want to remind our audience a little bit about some of the statistics from Afghanistan about being the majority producer of heroin around the world. 90% of the heroin in the world is produced in Afghanistan, with roughly 10,000 tons produced yearly of poppy, and it is 30% of their GDP. Gross 30, domestic. Wait, yeah. 30% of the entire country's GDP? Yeah. 30% of Afghanistan's economy is not even necessarily heroin, it's poppy. Like oh, okay. The seeds, yeah. I thought you were going to say specifically heroin. Like, that oh. would be insane. I mean, it's opioids, so they're not using the poppy to sell it to America to make muffins. This is like drug-related poppy production. Um, and they employ 600,000 Afghanis on their poppy production. I remember back in college when I did my reports <clears throat> on Afghanistan... And I was doing a program with the USDA, um, like, uh, like their, you know, the food aid that we provide to Afghanistan. And a lot of the programs that America tried early on in, in the war with Afghanistan was attempting to redo a lot of these farms, to, like encourage farmers to switch over from poppy production to like food production. Like, yo, you guys have the land, like, and you're starving redo your farms get yeah. some food into it so kind of the same thing that we did with colombia right and cocaine switching but them over to coffee this wasn't even as much of an economy thing it was more about can you feed yourself mm -hmm. and it didn't work simply because they're like we don't care about food because these poppy seeds make us so much damn money that like we're gonna continue to grow them and we'll buy your food mm -hmm. we don't have to grow our own stuff it's a cash crop it's like the the U.S. South during the Civil War with cotton. Mm -hmm. Like, they produced nothing but cotton, but they had so much freaking money that they could buy anything around the world at any point. And that's kind of Afghanistan's logic with it. And poppy production employs more people in Afghanistan than any other industry, including the government plus the military. So it is the single largest employer of Afghanis. More than the government and the military combined? combined yeah. What? Mm-hmm. However, despite Afghanistan being the world's largest producer of heroin or of poppy seeds, it is not, like you just mentioned a second ago, the largest producer of heroin or the largest distributor of it. Most, if not all of it, about 90, 95% of all of the poppy seeds that are intended to become opium, opium in Afghanistan is taken to East Africa, specifically into Kenya. And like I said before, these people involved in the drug trade, they are kind of professionals, right? They've mapped out areas near Afghanistan that they could go and spread their empire into. And they picked Kenya specifically because it is just stable enough and has just the right amount of infrastructure because you don't want a place with no infrastructure or no stability because then you're just kind of stuck not selling your product anywhere. But Kenya, um, specifically Mombasa, has a very large port, has a good highway network, has good internet and phone uh, service. Um, it's relatively safe, and it's within close, like, spitting distance of Afghanistan. So it's really easy to move massive amounts of product from Afghanistan into Kenya, which is, you know, in this perfect middle ground between stable enough and just corrupt enough to where they can have this massive drug trade and specifically production of heroin perfectly to where the government's not going to intervene, but they have the infrastructure to call each other, to have trucks and moving their products back and forth without having the danger of, like, marauder groups going around and, like, raiding their stuff. Mm. So it's not in Afghanistan, which is, like, unstable like crazy, or a U.S. that would crack down within an hour. East Africa has become 
like a boiling point of heroin. And we talk about in the US, okay, well, heroin's not that big of a deal so far. However, it has hit Kenya bad. Um, and deliberately. It deliberately, like. yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. This was like surgical. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. So the people that run the heroin operation weren't from Kenya. Mm. They just decided to set up shop there yes. because of how easy it is. It's a staging ground. With having a big enough port and access to the rest of the world, um, like Kenya's positioned pretty close to um, all the world's like major trading routes. Mm. Clear shot to Asia, clear shot to the Suez Canal, which gets you into Europe, and then not too far from there is the U.S. Like, so who who are the people that are doing all of this stuff. I mean, in the last episode or mm-hmm. uh, in Cocaine, we talked about like Pablo Escobar, obviously doing all of his stuff. Yeah. But like, who is like the Pablo Escobar of heroin? heroin? Yeah. Not necessarily anything. There's no like, there are big cartels or big drug, gr- drug groups, but mostly it's pretty decentralized. A lot of Afghan poppy farmers just kind of ship their goods into Kenya where there are just larger receivers of it, like local stagers who then have local labs and they make a big operation out of it. There's not necessarily like one global Pablo, you know, heroin leader. It's pretty, I mean, if you want to really say one that's probably like big pharma and then Purdue pharma in the U S like they're the ones, the biggest proponent of opioids in the U S so, but there is no like one singular Pablo. Vertical integration in drugs is not that popular anymore. After Pablo's demise, everyone kind of realized that the dangers of it. Um, but yeah, and unfortunately with the production of heroin being in Kenya, there's this huge issue of like heroin dens now in Kenya where people are so entrenched in this drug that it's almost become normal to see so many people outside doing heroin that local like missionaries or local doctors have set up areas where you can come and safely do heroin. Wow. And they mostly, the biggest thing that they want to provide are uh, clean, free needles. Yeah. I was going to say that like, that's probably the biggest issue is needle sharing. Yeah. In Kenya, after in the last 15 years, when heroin's become a bigger issue, uh, HIV rose 40%. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you're running the risk of getting addicted to a very addictive because substance. HIV but, but... in Africa is already a problem. Right. And then you add heroin Into and heroin it. needles on top of that. Yes. Like, that's just like a like the perfect storm of like just AIDS spreading yeah. everywhere. And if you're wondering how dirty needles transmit AIDS, it's it AIDS is like a bloodborne pathogen where it's of an immune suppressant virus that goes into your body and suppresses your immune response to any kind of virus coming into you uh, afterwards. So like, if you get HIV, you can die from the common cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gets into your bloodstream and the only way to transmit it is then through blood or and like, I guess other fluid as well. And so at a heroin, you know, den, I would shoot up some heroin. You'd grab my needle because other ones aren't so accessible. You'd shoot up and now both of us have HIV because if I had it, now you have it too. So these like doctors go in, they're not even like telling these people, hey, you should stop doing heroin. They're just there like, hey, free needles, just don't share. Free needles, don't share. Because they don't have the capabilities, the infrastructure to go in there and, and like actually treat people. Right. Yeah. And like, what, what are you going to offer them to stop? Right. Mm-hmm. You can, yeah, it's just, it's a really bad zone. Uh, one of the nice things about the heroin dens is that they are primarily staffed by former addicts themselves. Mm. So a lot of the people there kind of like anecdotally can share their story of like, hey, I was a heroin addict as well. And this is how I got out of it. Like there is a future here. Um, but I just kind of really wanted to share just how bad it's hitting other parts of the world. The war on drugs is not an American centric problem. It is a global problem. And, and it's a human problem like 10 15 years from now when we colonize mars there's gonna be a drug problem on mars just might be a more fancier drugs instead of like cocaine plants but you know it's it's a human problem and we're gonna have it and it's good to start talking about it and good to start addressing it because i bet a lot of these people at the heroin dens kind of wish someone told them the dangers of heroin Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's going to get really interesting when we start talking about the, the transition from people taking prescription drugs and how they then get addicted to heroin. And no one, a biggest complaint that people had was telling them, there, no one told them the dangers of, hey, this substance that you're taking is very addictive, careful what you're doing. And so a lot of these people in the heroin dens 
who were dealers or are dealers themselves are stuck in this loop. You're making on average, you know, $30 a day in East Africa. Not bad. But when you sell heroin, you're making $250, $300 a day. Just like that same problem we talked about with Colombia, right? Where you have such high poverty rates and the prom- there is no promised future unless you break the law. And in East Africa, same goes there. Like a lot of these heroin dealers are people that have families and they're like, I'm sorry for what I'm doing. I'm sorry for like getting you into an addictive substance, but I got I to gotta take care of my family. And that sucks. Why do you put people in a position like that? And I don't know who I'm asking that question to, but whoever it is, and if you have any power, why do you put people in that position? All right. And we haven't yet talked about the actual process of what heroin does to a person's body. These are usually my favorite parts is like going into the effects of it into a person. So with cocaine, we had um, a substance that you snort that hits your brain increases your dopamine to like the maximum level, right? Ultimate achievement. With synthetics and with MDMA, it was a target, it was targeting um, serotonin, serotonin, which gives you like that general joy and just, just like, like blissful. Yeah, you're feeling. just calm about things, right? Yeah. This is life, I get it now. Uh, heroin is a little different because it's not like absorbed instantly like cocaine is where like literal particles land on your brain and just soak into it and then with mdma broken down into chemistry uh the process of heroin is it goes into your liver after you inject it because heroin is done through needles you inject heroin into a vein it gets to your liver and it's broken down into morphine and so the process of heroin being broken down into morphine is a very quick process i'm talking maybe 15 minutes and in those 15 minutes, that's the high that people look for between morphine and heroin. It's that process of being broken down from heroin into morphine that causes people to almost like enter a total state of pleasure. So uh, heroin will target not so much serotonin, not so much um, dopamine, but a lot of oxytocin and a lot of uh, endorphins. Like endorphins are get from working out, right? It's like the pain relieving pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get the like almost maximum level of it. So heroin is essentially like the conduit for morphine. Mm-hmm. So at the at the end of the day, it's like you're doing heroin, but like your body is still experiencing all of the effects of morphine, which morphine was in and of itself its own drug. Yes. So does heroin just like spike and like produce an excessive amount of morphine? Because mm-hmm. like, why wouldn't people just do morphine instead? Because know? morphine... Yeah, there is a high associated with morphine, right? And it hits your opioid receptors. But like I said, heroin is kind of a more developed opioid, like more developed poppy. Poppy, basic form, doesn't do anything. You can put it on muffins. Poppy broken down into morphine, like there's a process. It's pretty quick and pretty easy. I think you just mash it down and like just let it ferment or whatever. I don't know. But but then from there, like there's just one more step to take poppy from morphine and morphine into heroin. It's a pretty simple. So it's just like ultra condensed. Yeah. Heroin is like, like you were mentioning, the final step of the production of poppy seeds. And so it's really not that difficult. It just kind of takes a little bit more work. If you're lazy, you'll just turn poppy into morphine. If you've got the time, you'll turn it into heroin. But again, they both produce a very similar high on the tail end, but it's that process of being broken from heroin into morphine that a lot of the addicts really love. That's that moment of like mega bliss. Have you seen, you've seen uh, Breaking Bad, right? And when Jesse does heroin for the first time and the only time, and they film that cool shot where he does it and he like floats to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people, a lot of addicts, like when I was reading about it, describe it like that. Like you're just like floating. It's what it really feels like. Um, after it's broken down into morphine, it's a much more like digestible enzyme in your blood, basically. And it gets small enough and broken down enough to where it's able to breach the blood brain barrier. So it becomes so small and near your brain area where like the blood is absorbed or whatnot, it can go through your blood brain barrier and into your brain and hit your opioid receptors. Then, like, this second wave of a rush and a high begin. Um, and it, it's just a few minutes of that. So, heroin lasts pretty um, pretty 
quickly, right? It's not a very long lasting thing in the beginning. After it hits your opioid receptors, which all of us have opioid receptors, it's like your pain tolerance receptor and like all that. Um, Once it hits there, then you kind of get this high sense of warmth and comfort for hours. Then the dopamine and the euphoria rushes in. So that initial hit is like maximum pleasure and like, holy crap, this is like the best thing I'm ever feeling now. And then rushes in the dopamine of like, dang, that felt great. I'm glad I can't believe I just did that. And that lasts for hours. Um, However, unlike other drugs where it just ends and you're kind of depleted and you're a little sad, um, towards the end of the process of heroin, a person's body always goes within into withdrawal. Um, your ner- your opioid neuro- neurotransmitter. Tra- <laughs> wow, it's a mouthful. Your opioid neurotransmitters actually become so addicted to that dosage of like uh, morphine and heroin that just entered your system that temporarily stops producing its own response to natural, um, you know, the stimuli in your body. And towards the tail end of the morphine wearing out in your body, you're actually going into withdrawal. And so a lot of people that are addicted to morphine and heroin have to consistently be high. It's not one of those things like, okay, I got a weekend free. I'm going to go do some MDMA. It's like a, holy crap, I can't be sober because your opioid receptors are like shaking and freaking out in desperate need of more heroin. It's kind of scary. Kind of crazy how this one works out. Um, There are like feelings of euphoria and like in... Like you're feeling in this alert state yet drowsy state. So you're kind of more like I'm aware, but I'm kind of chilled out aware. Um, Causes mouth dryness because your blood is heart rates increasing, um, skin flushing, and your breathing slows down and actually breaks down your muscles. So, so that's why whenever you see a heroin addict, they just look like skin and bone. Yeah, it it will eat away your muscles. It's kind of crazy. Um. However, because heroin has not been like so documented in the U.S., we're kind of not really stopping them. The trade of heroin is not as publicized and marketed like crazy enough in the U.S. where we have Pablo Escobar-esque like levels of response to it. It's more just like, oh, we have a heroin problem. Don't do heroin, whatever. But we don't understand that it's actually destroying lives and preying on the desperate. And with their whole marketing level of, okay, let's target weaker people. Let's target people to become dealers later. We, we're not understanding the business component of it. And unlike MDMA, like where we, if we, you know, bring it down to a schedule two and open up the door to lab research, there is no like clear way to work with heroin other than let's just get rid of it. And the way we've tackled getting rid of it doesn't really work. And so heroin's its own it's a huge problem but i really wanted to prefer like preface um heroin with opioid like the opioid crisis that we have right now so heroin is this well-known front page seller podcast selling drug right (laughs) here we are uh but it's not like the root problem it's the end result of a crisis that we're already in the midst of and that we're finally only now in 2022 starting to talk about. And this is specifically with big pharma and how marketing in the pharmaceutical industry has led to a, a, a dramatic rise in heroin cases. Have you heard of a drug, Noah, called Oxycontin? I have. I don't really know much about it, mm-hmm. but um, it is, it's a pharmaceutical drug, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is a completely legal pharmacy-sold narcotic. It's a painkiller, right? Yes. Yeah, they actually, um, when I had my surgery a couple weeks ago, they mm-hmm. were going to prescribe me Oxycontin, but then the doctor like changed his mind at the last second. Which is probably a good call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oxycontin is pretty much an over-the-top powerful painkiller, and it has its similar roots to heroin. Heroin and morphine... I forgot to mention in our in our battle breakdown in our breakdown of the biology of it, um, it numbs your pain. It's a pain that numbs pain. It's like it replaces the pain receptors in your body to instead feel like pleasure. So that's why you like over the top. You're like kind of requisitioning and hijacking your other receptors that could feel pain and telling them to feel good instead. So the level of intensity of pain, you're now feeling level intensity of pleasure. Oxycontin, 
was created in response to the 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 void the heroin the the like criminalization of heroin created. Heroin was created to replace morphine, and oxycontin was essentially created to replace uh, heroin. So how does that make any sense? If heroin was created to replace morphine, yeah, but all it does is just synthesize itself into morphine in your body, then literally, what's the point? There, there is this weird cycle in the psychology of like big pharma, and I don't think they're ignorant enough to understand that it's not possible. But they understand there's a massive need for painkillers. There's a massive need because people are in pain, literally, like a surgery, a car accident, you got shot, whatever. There's a big need of painkillers in society. And oftentimes, the stronger, like an ibuprofen just won't cut it. And a lot of the times, it's it's an opioid that you need to, to bridge that pain into something sustainable. Like, you can't live in a long-term state of pain, right? And so... Morphine was created for that, for like wounded soldiers. That's what it was used for. And then heroin was created after the war was over, but we still had pains of car accidents or whatever. And then we just realized, okay, that's illegal because that's too addictive. Maybe maybe Oxycontin will be that one that's not addictive, but ca- like will cure pain. Um, and I, that's why I said I don't think they're necessarily, man, like that dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way that Big Pharma doesn't understand that it's not going to spiral into something like this. I think they're just trying to create something that could be controversial, but uh, but has clear results of painkilling now, and then translate it into a problem later, and then we'll replace it with something after that. Um, And, yeah, let's get... Let me get into this. <laughs> I wish you guys could see when we get our live streams going. I just went from leaning back in my chair into leaning in because things are about to get real here. Um, so in the Rust Belt in the United States, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, like that central eastern side of the U.S. is the worst hit area by the opioid crisis. And it's no longer about supply and demand of drugs. Like there's a high supply of drugs and a high demand. It is an oversupply of oxycotton and no demand. And we and the company that created oxycotton, which we'll get into in a minute, um, realized that there was not necessarily that big of a demand for this specific drug. And so they artificially created a demand, marketed it as everybody needs this, sold it, and then tried to wipe their hands clean of it. And they did it really well in the Rust Belt, which is a heavy manufacturing, like industrial side of the U.S. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, motor accidents or surgery accidents or whatever, like you just had your surgery like five years ago, they would have prescribed you Oxycontin. So doctors like specific or not doctors, the pharmaceutical industry targeted the Rust Belt particularly because there was a higher than usual need for painkillers. And as of today, uh, 80% of the nonviolent crimes in the Rust Belt are drug-related. And nearly 90% of the drug users in the Rust Belt say they all started with a prescription drug. And I was reading a story of this guy who was um, who absolutely despised the world of drugs. He's like, anyone who uses drugs is an idiot. They just don't know how to control themselves. Had a surgery got prescribed Oxycontin and ended up using it for years, got arrested and lost his family in his house. And like wow. the, the thing about Oxycontin is it is so ridiculously powerful that it will overcome any moral or any like high ground that you have and just destroy you. Like it will like take you for a spin. And that's what this whole pharmaceutical industry did. Oxycontin is by far the most um, atrocious product ever created by the pharmaceutical industry. When you hear the term big pharma and someone gives you like the, you know, condescending, like, oh, I hate big pharma. This is usually what they're referring to. Oxycontin was lobbied really hard um, by this company called Purdue Pharma. Purdue essentially only existed because they had this painkiller um, that helped cancer patients recover. And so it was like low end and they decided, okay, our patent is running out. We've got a couple years to figure out an alternative to this big market share that we now have of drugs. And their solution was to create Oxycontin, which is Oxycodine, which is a very strong painkiller that like say Vicodin or Percocet will use. Um, And 
instead of those ones which have oxycodone, it's a uh, but they have a slow release. This one's the same drug but with a very quick release. Um, and their objective with it was let's lobby the crap out of not hospitals, but they're going to specifically target doctors. And they specifically targeted non-professional doctors. You know, that guy like that runs a random clinic at the end of the street somewhere, not, not necessarily here, but like anywhere, right? Like non-professional doctors who have the legal right to prescribe medication and they're going to market to them. And they actually created an entire algorithm where they had a list of doctors who prescribe a lot of painkilling medication and then B, who were likely to prescribe more. And they directly lobbied and sold to them the idea of Oxycontin. Um, And it wasn't, like I said, like Vicodin or Percocet because it is pure oxycodone. Oxycodone is a chemical breakdown of like, it's a further development of opioid, of opium. And it will target your opium receptors nearly at a 100% effective rate. And with opioids, the quicker it hits your blood bloodstream, the quicker your body becomes addicted to it. So if it's a slow-release painkiller, then your body's way less addicted to it. Like with ibuprofen, it takes 30, 40 minutes for it to kick in at a small level. With oxycodone, it's nearly a couple minutes, and it's already in your brain. It's a very quick release. Um and it binds way better to your opioid receptors. It immediately will pause your pain, and it doesn't matter what pain you're in. Like if you got your legs chopped off in a freak accident, and they gave you a high enough dosage of Oxycontin, Noah, you would stop feeling that, and that intensity of pain that you feel in that moment would then be translated into an intense feeling of like euphoria and a high. It hijacks those pain receptors. It is very rapid and it is strong and it has the same effect, like we mentioned, of a heroin user. Like, sounds low-key kind of terrifying. It is so like, terrifying. I have no idea how it got legalized. <laughs> um, and it became like the marketing was so freaking effective that like uh, it was no longer marketed as a, here's a really strong painkiller, use it if someone got their leg cut off. It was marketed as a pain reliever to mild to severe pain and that mild part is where they really hit the point home you could go in a couple years ago Noah, to your dentist and tell them you have a toothache and they would prescribe you oxycontin and your body would be like holy crap that was nice i want more and if they told you let's start with one dose every 12 hours you would do that and then as you build a tolerance you would start doing six doses every hour like the 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 spiraling control or the spiral of addiction with this was so out of hand and it kind of actually got a little it is a little scary in the u.s right now uh, every 11 minutes someone is dying from an oxycontin overdose um and it's not a drug that is only targeting the weak-minded and the weak-spirited it is something that is all over the place um and like I said, it's a repeat of history. We're literally getting a repeat of, okay, morphine was bad. Let's have heroin. Okay, heroin was bad. Let's have Oxycontin. It is this like almost intentional negligence on the side of Big Pharma. Um, it was created in, oh, I forgot to say, it was created in 1996. Um, and they spent most of their money that they had left Purdue Pharma on advertising and it wasn't like they did have tv ads but it was mostly single targeting um and they were told doctors initially a lot of them were worried about the addiction like they they weren't dumb they were worried about the addictive nature of it and oftentimes they were told it's a pseudo addiction you may be asking what the heck is a pseudo addiction addiction that just means that a, a patient has high pain they're not addicted to a substance. They're just trying to get rid of the pain. So if you increase their dosage or get it right, then they wouldn't be addicted to the drug. They're just trying to get rid of pain. So Oxycontin, they were told, is not addictive. It's just that your patients are trying to alleviate pain. And so they're just trying to go all out to remove that pain. And they told them um, it's drug-seeking behavior, drug seeking behaviors, but not addiction. Because addiction implies you have no control. And since you're the one prescribing the drug, we have full control. Within three years of 
Purdue Pharma creating OxyContin, it had made them over $3 billion. And by 2012, they had created enough dosages and it was used enough daily that four out of five Americans could have access to OxyContin freely with no limitations. It's not to say four out of five were using it, but there was enough supply out there where four out of five Americans could comfortably use it. So it is just a crazy outbreak of OxyContin. And you can't necessarily blame doctors. They were straight up lied to by Purdue that um, these the marketers there created such a great marketing scheme that they, they fooled everyone with it. And so many decent people that had you know, no reason to be addicted to drugs, ended up getting stuck in the opioid crisis. Um, and then if you were prescribed OxyContin, Noah, a couple of years ago, your dosage would last three months. And when your prescription ran out and you'd go back to get more because you're so addicted to it, your doctor would essentially just tell you, no, there's no way I'm going to keep prescribing you OxyContin a month after your tooth was hurting, right? And so a lot of fake clinics popped up all over the U.S. For-profit, low-grade fake doctors who were bringing in $76 billion annually across the board between each other. And these guys would supply the legal and illegal supply of OxyContin on the road, on the street, on their road. Um, and you could go in there, like, you don't even have to present anything. Like, oh, I have my my neck hurts, and they would prescribe you the max dosage of Xanax plus... Um, oxycontin plus vicodin whatever the heck you needed and then they would bill it to your insurance claiming that you needed it and so there was like this it's not like cocaine where you're going into a cash business of a a product it was like the pharmaceutical drug trade Mm. and i can't wait till we do our final episode when we talk about the legal drug trade because it's literally as dangerous like the ox the opioid crisis was started in the pharmacy right it wasn't started on a plane in the backwaters of like miami it was literally in your local like my king supers like what 300 yards that way could could have been the epicenter of an opioid crisis because they probably have oxycontin they probably still do um when you have a prescription of it it's about ten dollars a pill so ten dollars so about twenty dollars a day you were you were you were prescribed it twice a day every 12 hours uh, and then $30 illegally, $30 a pill. So your average illegal drug user was supposed to, if they were doing the right dosage, about $30 or $60 a day. After the U.S. came in and started cracking down on OxyContin about three years ago, when we realized, holy crap, we just opened a can of worms that we can't close because we just created a whole series of addicts. And they started, like you said, you were supposed to get a surgery after your surgery, you're supposed to get OxyContin. Um, and they didn't tell you. They just didn't let you have it. After doctors were really opened up, their eyes were opened up to it, and OxyContin became less legal, the price of it skyrocketed. Like today, it's maybe $30, $45 a pill. And here's the crazy thing about it. Your body builds such a quick tolerance for it, Noah, that what used to be enough for twice a day dosage became a, a you had to start using it 20 times a day your average uh, abuser of oxycontin takes 20 pills a day at the 30 to 40 dollar rate so that that's multiple times an hour yes it is completely unsustainable i'm doing the math real quick 20 times, let's say, let's be generous and say $30. That's a $600 a day habit. And so... But nobody can afford that, though. Exactly. And so what is the cheaper alternative opioid that you can turn to if it's not Oxycontin? Heroin. Heroin. And that's where the heroin trade in the U.S. comes into play. Whoa. (laughs) Full circle. That's how heroin's a problem in the U.S. Because a majority of these addictions began in the pharmacy, became so unsustainable, yet they were still looking for that specific high. And this this literal epidemic that has been started by the pharmaceutical industry, and this is where I'm going to get a little political, is not a red or blue or right or left issue. It is a political issue, but it's a political issue of the big pharmaceutical like industry and their money. The fact that they can lobby that this specific drug, OxyContin, is allowed to be legal 
and nothing else is as a solution to pain just goes to show just how pathetic our FDA can be, right? That it's so easily influenced with money. And if you just get one green check mark on your drug, oh, this is good for you. Who gives a crap about the effects of kids, jails, teens, moms, like the suburban people who are the ones targeted by the opioid crisis? Who cares? Because I got that green check mark from the FDA. Who the hell does Big Pharma think they are? And the worst part is, once we realize just how dangerous the 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 epidemic of, of OxyContin ended up being, there was no repercussions for it. Nobody paid the price at Purdue Pharma or any of the subsequent sister companies of it that produced opioids of this scale. When they did investigations, nobody went to jail. Nobody lost their jobs. It didn't matter what they did. The only response by Purdue Pharma said, oops, sorry, we didn't mean to start an epidemic of a drug crisis in our country, but we kind of did. Who cares? We made $12 billion out of it. Live with it. We're going to be back in 10 years. We're going to have something else. We need to hold people like this accountable. Like, there's no way we should allow executives like this to just lord over our entire medical industry and just tell you what's okay and what's not. Then they need to be held responsible. They can't just lie about the dangers of a product and flood a market with a drug that wasn't even in demand and uh, create an artificial demand and create a literal addicted, captive audience. You market it to doctors who then who believed and are trusted people in society to prey on people that needed support. These people had a pain and you provided a solution to some, like an overblown solution to it. It's wrong. It's dirty. It's immoral. It's just nasty. What the money in this kind of industry can cause. And it it is fearful to me that the largest industry in the United States can be so corrupted and perverted with so much dirty money and that oxycontin a well researched understood drug could have been released and openly accepted by the medical community simply because there was money involved there's so much more i want to say about this because how like i mean i don't know if you can even feel my emotion through the microphone here but we can oh yeah and it 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 riles me up and there's so much more i want to talk about And there will be more that we're going to talk about. And so here in a moment, we're going to be cutting our episode here. And if you want to hear more about just how I messed up and corrupted the pharmaceutical industry is and just kind of how like, we're going to talk about how pop culture is really relating to all this and how the the highest echelons of our economy and our government are all, I want to say, in on it. There there, There is a conspiracy that we have like uncovered with the pharmaceutical with the money and like how it all played into just us and so there's so much more we're going to talk about and if you want to join us over on patreon that's where we'll continue this conversation all right steve that was amazing uh probably one of our most uh heated discussions yet well i can't even say discussion because it was just all you <laughs> heated talking. monologue heated monologue yet um, but yeah, if you want to hear more of the discussion, more uh, back and forth between Steve and I, we do a lot more talking. Um, I do a lot more talking. So, you know, I don't know if that's a pro or a con. But if you want to hear me talk more, uh, make sure to subscribe to the Patreon. We'll do an after show discussion for this episode. Um, and so far, the after show discussions have been really, really cool and really informative. They've so, been really fun. Yeah. So go check out the Patreon. Uh, link is in the description of the show. And we'll see you over there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. <laughs>